Welcome everybody to the Voices from the Northeast Podcast. Morning podcasters. You know, I was born in North Seaton Colliery. When I, when I were a lad, I should have remembered that because my mother used to work for them. I'm champion for me, absolutely fine. And who doesn't make the selection box for breakfast? Eee, that was Christmas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to our special Halloween episode. We started this tradition, and it's definitely now a tradition. We started it last Halloween, and uh, we then did a Christmas Ghost Stories episode as well, and we are back this Halloween 2022 with another spooky tale from the Northeast. Sylvia from the Haunted Palace blog is back with us and this time we are going to be discovering another story from the northeast that we just have never heard of before another location that you can visit anytime you want but you probably wouldn't realize has a haunted past tonight Sylvia is going to tell us all about the haunting of Willington Mill. First of all, I'd like to say thank you so much for inviting me back um, to talk on Voices from the Northeast for your Halloween special because I really enjoyed it last time, so I'm really pleased to be back here. Um, and today I've got the tale of the ha- a haunting in North Tyneside, the haunting of Willington Mill or more precisely, the Mill House. Um, It occurred in the 1830s and 1840s, and it's a story that was incredibly well known in its day and throughout the 19th century, but it's been all but forgotten now. Um, We know about the events because there was um, a diary written by one of the witnesses at the time, and it was discovered amongst his papers when he died in 1875. There are also a number of other contemporary sources, and I will mention them because I think that it's quite useful to see where the information was coming from and also when it was being written. So the first account was published by William Howitt in 1840 in his book Visits to Remarkable Places. And in 1842, M.A. Richardson covered it in his local historian's table book. So these are two people who are writing about events as they were occurring, wow. you know, so it's as, it, as and when it was happening. Um, the haunting has also um, captured the interest of prominent writers on the paranormal. Um, the 19th century was a time when people started to look at the paranormal as a something that might be scientifically exp- explained or studied. Mm-hmm. And Catherine Crow was one of the first people who wrote about that. And she did that, uh, published a book um, called The Night Side of Nature in 1848. And she mentions um, the haunting at Willington Mill. And what's quite amusing about that is she actually wrote to Joseph Proctor who lived in the mill and he very politely rebuffed her and redirected her back to um, William Howitt's account. So he he Mm. wasn't biting there. Um, And one of the other people who covered this story was a famous local boy, W.T. Stead, who was born in Embleton in Northumberland and very famous journalist, spiritualist. He died on the Titanic um, and he covered this story in real ghost stories in the 1890s. Um, I think he was probably interested because it was a local story. He edited the Northern Echo at some point as well. Um, mm. So eventually this diary that existed, a- account um, 
with an account of the events was published by the Journal for the uh, Society for Psychical Research, which I might just call SPR from yeah. now on because I could never get it out. Um, so the first thing I'd, I'd like to do is sort of set the scene. Um, Go for and it. In all of the accounts I've read, um, William Howitt gives the most eloquent kind of description of where Willington Mill is. So between the railway running from Newcastle on Tyne to North Shields and the River Tyne, there lie in a hollow some few cottages, a parsonage, a mill and a miller's house. These constitute the hamlet of Willington. Just above these, the railway is carried across the valley on lofty arches, and from it you look down on the mill and cottages lying at considerable depth below. The mill is a large steam flour mill like a factory, and the miller's house stands near it, but not adjoining it. None of the cottages which lie between these premises and the railway either is in contact with them. The house stands on a sort of little promontory round which runs the channel of a watercourse which appears to fill and empty with the tides. On one side of the mill and house slopes away upwards a field to a considerable distance where it is terminated by enclosures. On the other stands a considerable extent of Ballast Hill. The property is halfway between Newcastle and North Shields. So just for a bit of clarity for local landmarks. The watercourse is known as Wellington Gut and the railway bridge is the Wellington Viaduct and both are still, yeah. you can still visit both of them. So, and it's also worth noting as this is a haunting, um, external factors need to be considered. The railway didn't open until 1840. So mm -hmm. that, that's quite useful to know. So in essence, what we're looking at is an industrial area set in a valley. Um, there's heavy industry all around. You've got collieries, shipbuilding close by. The community around the mill is a very small knit, a uh, small, closely knit community. It's not remote. It's not isolated. It, it's a hive of industry populated by hardworking, largely working class people and generally not the kind of place you'd associate with a haunting. And yet, <laughs> even before the mill was, um, even before the mill and the land, um, you know, was built on the land, the land had a bad reputation. So a lot of the locals believed that a witch had lived there in the area, um, possibly at the beginning of the 18th century. And some people link the story of the Willington witch to a, a Mrs. Pepper, who was historically attested witch, um, uh, which, an accused witch pardon me, um, who was tried and acquitted of witchcraft in nearby Newcastle back in the late 17th century. So somebody who actually got, got away and didn't, didn't yeah. get, mm. get hanged. Um, good for Mrs. Pepper. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the theory is that she obviously decided Newcastle was too hot to handle her and she left. Um, there are no records to support this, so it's difficult to, to say. It's a nice idea. It might be true. It might not. Um, if, um, so the witch, she could have been some kind of cunning woman or a local folk healer if mm -hmm. it actually existed. Um, and the reason the land is cursed is because when she was dying, a priest refused to give her final communion. So she died unshriven and she had a deathbed curse for the land um, on which she died. And not only that, um, more recent rumours to the story hinted that a murder had been committed by one of the workers during the building of the mill, which added to the sense mm. of unease and foreboding in, in the whole area. So the mill itself and the mill house were built somewhere around about 1800 to 1806. The sources differ. There's a few 
anomalies in the diary and, and you know what people say. The business partnership of William Brown, Joseph Unthank and Joseph Proctor Sr. built and owned the mill. It was very innovative for its time. It was uh, um, one of the first steam-powered flour mills in the North Tyneside area and the engines would run well into the night. Um, the mill house itself was built next to the mill but it was separated by it from by a road so there was no connecting walls or anything. It was originally um, lived in by Joseph Unthank and his family and when Joseph Proctor Sr. died in 1813 his son who was also called Joseph joined the business becoming a full partner in about 1829 and the original partnership had been dissolved Brown had left in about 1807. Um, the Unthanks and the Proctors were cousins and they were both very respected members of the Quaker community and, and respected local businessmen. So the house itself, looking at it, it's an unremarkable, square, double-fronted, very typical early 19th century house. It's described as having three floors, which includes the ground floor, which is often referred to as the first floor, and it's got a garret and an attic area above it. Um, some sources say the house didn't have a cellar, others say it did. So you have somebody mm. like Richardson in his table book saying that uh, there was definitely no cellaring, whereas W.T. Stead and some modern writers say there was a cellaring and that becomes important um, when they start looking into the possibility of a murder on the site and where the body might have been buried. So mm -hmm. but we'll go into that later. So so that's that's basically where this all takes place and the kind of house it was. So really, what was it like to live in the house? That's where it starts to get interesting. Um, so as far as it goes, things were pretty unremarkable at the Mill House for, for a number of years. The Unthanks lived there from 1806 to about 1831. Um, Joseph Unthank finally retired in 1831 and moved his family out of the Mill House and moved over to Battle Hill Farm, which is in Wall's End. In the same year, um, Joseph Proctor got married. He married a lady called Elizabeth Carr, who lived in Kendall. Um, he and his new wife took up residence in the mill and they soon filled the mill with their young family. And things were, were going pretty well um, for the Proctors until 1835, when things started to get a little strange. So this all started in January 1835. So it all began with footsteps in an empty room. For about two months, the children's nursemaid had heard someone pacing back and forth in the room above the nursery. So forceful were the steps that it even rattled the window frame in the nursery. And this happened every evening and lasted for about 10 minutes each time. Sometimes the kitchen maid would go up to keep her company and find the nursemaid pale and trembling. And the nursemaid's unease at these strange noises grew until she was convinced that the noises were of a supernatural origin. So she reported the um, events to Elizabeth Proctor, her mistress, and the nursemaid couldn't handle it anymore and she just left. Mm. On another occasion, Elizabeth Proctor was in the nursery at about 11am when she too heard a heavy tread in the room above. The new nursemaid, when she took up employment, was not told about the strange noises, but she too was soon regularly being terrified by these boots pacing backwards and forwards in the room above the nursery. Now, each time the room was checked and each time it was empty. And one of the things that it, it you know, it's such a strange phenomenon. So even though Joseph Proctor 
had made the servants promise not to talk about what was going on um, in case he couldn't get staff. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the story got out and soon some of the Proctor's own relatives were coming to um, check out the phenomena and and stay in the nursery and listen out for the noises. And sometimes they heard them, sometimes they didn't. Um, But where it gets a little bit more sinister is that the room on the third floor um, where the noises were coming from which had become known quite for obvious reasons as the disturbed room wasn't an ordinary room it wasn't used very often by the family and the door had been nailed shut until quite recently Mm. and in addition to this the window and the fireplace were boarded up and there was no access from the roof and dust was thick on the floor and that dust hadn't been disturbed by a single footprint not even a mouse had been in that room and exactly mm. when that door was sealed and by whom it was opened is still a mystery so going back to when the Unthanks lived there they only lived on one floor of the house during their tenure um, so did they know something about that room did they seal it shut did Proctor open it and unknowingly release something mm. that should have remained sealed up in that room pretty soon Every inhabitant of that house had experienced some form of unexplained and terrifying phenomena emanating from the disturbed room. But things were only going to get worse. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> so between January and February 1835, Joseph Proctor reported the following in his diary. Soon after retiring to bed, before going to sleep, my wife and I both heard 10 or 12 obtuse dead and beats as of a mallet on a block of wood apparently within two feet of the bed curtain on one side by the crib in which the child was laid. The next night, before undressing, I had a hushed the child to sleep in his crib, and while leaning over it with one hand laid upon it and listening to some indistinct sounds overhead, which had just ceased, I heard a tap on the cradle leg as with a piece of steel and distinctly felt the vibration of the wood in my hand from the blow. So... That quite sort of strange event was was pretty much the last time the noises were heard coming out of the disturbed room, which kind of suggests that whatever was in there had got out and was now roaming the house, um, terrifying the inhabitants. So on the same night that that happened, Thomas Mann, who was a highly respected foreman working at the mill, was doing a night shift and he was tending the mill engine. And at around one o'clock in the morning, he went out into the mill yard to collect some more coal and he heard a loud grating noise on the cobbles. Now, the mill had a wooden cistern on wheels that was used to bring water to the mill horses. And man was convinced that someone was trying to steal the cistern. So he rushed to confront the thief. To his surprise, the cistern hadn't moved and the yard was deserted. By the time man described this experience to Joseph Proctor, he was convinced that it was a supernatural event. And in his journal, Proctor himself noted that he'd sometimes heard disembodied footsteps on the gravel outside his house. So you have to think, so by this time, it's clear to Joseph Proctor that there's something uncanny going on in his house. Mm. And, and quite naturally, he broached the subject with his cousin, Unthank, who had lived there for 25 years. And Proctor wrote down um, what, what the, how the conversation went in his diary. So... He said, my wife and I were informed by our cousin Unthanks that they understood that the house and that room in particular in which the noises now occurred was said to be haunted before they entered it in 1806. 
but that nothing they knew of had been heard during their occupancy of 25 years. And to be honest, I'm not sure I would have really believed um, Joseph Untank if I was Proctor. I'd be like, yeah. really? Really? <laughs> yeah. 25 years and you <laughs> heard nothing? Absolutely nothing. And that door was nailed shut the whole time. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, totally believable. Um, so after, after this revelation, um, Proctor then made a really indistinct, half-erased note in his diary. And it said, An infirm old woman, the mother-in-law of our oxen, the builder of the premises, lived and died in the house. And after her death, the haunting was attributed and then it breaks off. And a lot has been made of this phrase, potentially relating to the Willington Witch. But it's, uh-huh. you know, it's it's just a section. Yeah. It's not complete. We don't know. And it, you have to remember as well, the mill house at the time Proctor was living in it is comparatively new. He's living there in the 1830s and 40s. The house was only built at the beginning of the 19th century. So if the witch lived there or nearby, it must have been in an earlier, older house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Now, from there, surprisingly enough, things begin to escalate even more. (laughs) So so throughout 1835, the family and other visitors were continuing to experience strange phenomena on an almost daily basis. And the haunting had now evolved from simple bangs and footsteps to full-blown apparitions. It was the following incident that Joseph Proctor recorded in November of that year testifies. A respectable neighbour had seen a transparent white female figure in a window on the second story of the house. Proctor then notes a linked incident um, where he says, early in the evening, two of the children, one aged about eight, the other under two years, both saw unknown to each other, an object which could not be real and which went into the room where the apparition was afterwards seen and disappeared there. So, By now, I mean, you know, the house's reputation is notorious and some, you know, they're still a family, you know, they have relatives who want to come and visit and some of them naturally do not want to stay in that house. Yeah, I, yeah, completely get where that's coming from. And Elizabeth Proctor, Elizabeth Proctor's sister, Christiana Wright, um, came to visit, but she actually chose to stay with Thomas Mann and his family who lived in a cottage just nearby. Um, and she stayed in November 1835. However, even taking this precaution wasn't enough. Yes. So the following incident um, is recorded in the diary and it happened about um, in a winter's night, uh, November 1835, around about 9.30 p.m. And what he says is, soon after going to her bedroom, Thomas Mann's wife went out of the house for some calls and was struck by a figure in the window previously referred to. She called her husband, who saw the same figure, passing backwards and forwards, and then standing still in the window. It was very luminous and likewise transparent, and had the appearance of a priest in a white surplice. Mrs. Mann, after this, Mrs. Mann basically got her husband and daughter and Christiana to come out to to, to observe this figure. And the figure actually remained in the window for around about 10 minutes, until it gradually faded away from the head downwards. Which which seems okay. quite odd, yeah. um, and this is where the di- the diary is quite interesting because that's a strange thing. To, that's a very strange thing to see. And they described the scene. So they they basically said the witnesses said that the night was moonless, the yard was empty, the window blind was down, and that the figure seemed to come through the blind and through the glass. And that's quite important because they looked at the possibility at the time that maybe it was a magic lantern, uh, you know, course, somebody yes. playing yeah, a trick, yeah, yeah. and. 
they discounted that because they said the magic lantern would only have projected onto the blinds and not come out of the glass. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and my thoughts when I when I heard that the way it described, especially fading from the head down, that's yeah. really odd. My my immediate thought went to um, Pepper's ghost. It's yes. it's like a theatrical special effect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I looked up that up because I thought it's got to be Pepper's ghost, has it? Somebody is playing a trick, and. That wasn't a technique available until about the 1860s, so it's before, mm, okay. well, presumably, before Pepper's Ghost was was widely known. Um, so the next the next event took place on the 16th of December, 1835, um, when Elizabeth Proctor's sister Jane Carr was visiting, and it goes like this. So, a little before 12 o'clock at night, Jane Carr and her bedfellow were disturbed by a noise similar to the winding up of a clock, apparently on the stairs where the clock stands which continued for the space of 10 minutes. When that ceased, footsteps were heard in the room above, which is unoccupied, for perhaps a quarter of an hour. While this was going on, the bed was felt to shake, and Jane Carr distinctly heard the sound of a sack falling on the floor. So the ghost wasn't finished with Jane mm. Carr yet. <laughs> she had more uh, excitement to come. On the 31st of January, 1836, the diary notes that at about 12 o'clock at night, Jane Carr, being quite awake, was disturbed by a noise similar to a person knocking quickly and strongly on a piece of board in the room. When that ceased, she distinctly heard the sound of a footstep close by the side of the bed. So the next the next events um, were dated around the 21st of February 1836 and involved Mrs Proctor, who was sleeping apart from her husband. So she, uh, I think she, well, she was sleeping with Nurse Pollard possibly because the nurse was really scared of what was uh, going on in the house. And that event was that Elizabeth Proctor and Nurse Pollard both felt themselves raised up and let down three times. Edmund um, comments, he adds a little comment into this entry. My mother has described this experience to me. She said the bed was lifted up as if a man were underneath, pushing it up with his back. She did not speak to Nurse Pollard, nor the nurse to her, each thinking the other was asleep and this not being disclosed until breakfast time. Mm -hmm. In 1838, um, Jane Carr came back to visit and again, unsurprisingly, was not uh, willing to spend the night alone. So she spent um, the night sharing a bed with Mary Young, who was the cook. And believe it or not, things actually got even more scary. Um, what happened here was between 11 and 12 o'clock at night, Jane Carr heard a thump on the landing near the bedroom door, upon which she, um, she awoke her companion, Mary Young. Mary Young heard the uh, shot in the door apparently slide back, the handle turn and the door open. A rushlight was burning on the dressing table, but the bed was an old four-poster and the curtains being drawn, nothing could be seen. A step then went to the rushlight and appeared by the sound to snuff it and then lay down the snuffers in the act of snuffing the light, was transiently obscured as when that act is customarily performed. Jane Carr then felt it raise up the clothes over her twice. Then they both heard something rustle the curtains as it went round the bed. On getting to Mary Young's side, she distinctly saw a dark shadow on the curtain. On getting to the bedboard where Jane Carr lay, a loud thump as of a fist was heard on it. Something was then felt to press on the counterpane on Mary Young's side of the bed, the bed curtain being pushed in, but nothing more seen. Whatever the visitor might be was then heard to go out, seeming to leave the door open. 
in the morning, they found the door still bolted as it was left when they went to bed. In this occurrence, Jane C. heard and felt everything described, but having her head under the bedclothes could not see the shadow as her companion did. And I don't, I'm, I'm with her. I, my, yeah. my head would be under the bedclothes completely. <laughs> I'm not engaging with that at all. Um, yeah. So quite quite a lot is going on there. And obviously at the same time, you've got children in the house who are growing up in a really unusual, yeah. strange environment. And, and they weren't immune to this paranormal activity. Um, so sometimes um, they were scared by the paranormal activity. And a lot of the time they seemed to cope, cope with it. Um, they did have a range of experiences um, and they went from the bizarre to the amusing to, to the downright terrifying. Um, just a few examples are Joseph Jr. Um, there was another Joseph. So you've got grandfather <laughs> Joseph, father Joseph and young Joseph. Um, Joseph Jr. experienced a disembodied snatches of conversation. Um, voices saying things like, never mind and come and get. And he also appears to have actually haunted himself at one point because he claims to have seen his own image pacing about in his room. Um, mm. On another occasion, the children um, claimed that they saw and pursued strange animals, including an odd-looking cat and a strange monkey. Not what you'd commonly <laughs> find on Townside. No. Um, and as an adult, Edmund, um, the son, another one, the son who published the diary, he actually claimed that he recalled these events clearly, although he would have only been around two years old when this happened, um, the, the animal incidents. Other more terrifying episodes the children experienced included um, seeing disembodied white faces and an apparition with hollowed out eye sockets. Ooh. That is there. a bit creepy, that, yeah. Yeah, that, that, I didn't particularly like that one. I thought, no, I'm, all, I'm good with strange animals, but <laughs> hollowed out eye sockets, I draw the line. Um, so the next the next interesting event um, at Willington Mill is the vigil. So apart from its haunting, Willing, Willington Mill um, has an unusual claim to fame. It's one of the first sites um, where a ghost hunt was recorded in, in England. So one of the earliest ones wow. uh, we've got a record of. Um now, clearly, gossip about Willington Mill had travelled really fast. There's, by 1840, we've got at least one published account, more than likely. Mm. Um, people are talking in the local area. It's getting out and about. And in 1840, Dr. Edward Drury, who professed himself to be a sceptic, wrote to Joseph Proctor and very cordially invited himself, his dog and his brace of pistols to hold a vigil at the house at some point when the Proctors were away from home. So... Quite bizarrely, Joseph Proctor said, yes, that's absolutely fine. Um, the dog didn't come, but the pistols arrived. So Dr. Drury pitched up on the 3rd of July, 1840, along with another ghost hunter, um, a chemist called Thomas Hudson. And they were hoping to spend the night alone, locked in the mill, um, along with an elderly servant, just to, to sort of keep an eye on things. Unfor uh, unfortunately, so however, Mr. Proctor returned home from his trip early um, for business reasons. So in the end, um, the two sceptic ghost hunters dined with this hardened believer and came away fully believing that he, he was genuine, that, you know. Wow. So they, they came away converted that there was something going on. Um, and you might also say primed. Um, mm. So... What they did was they minutely searched the house for any tricks. Um, that's why the pistols were there, just in case anyone was hiding. Mm -hmm. um, and following the vigil, which was eventful, a letter was sent from Dr. Drury to Mr. Proctor 
to provide an account of what happened. So I am going to quote that because it's kind of interesting. So this is um, Dr. Dreary writing his letter describing the events. I sat down on the third story landing, fully expecting to account for any noises I might hear in a philosophical manner. This was about 11 o'clock p.m. About 10 minutes to 12, we both heard a noise as if a number of people was pattering with their bare feet upon the floor. And yet no so singular was the noise that I could not minutely determine from whence it proceeded. A few minutes afterwards, we heard a noise as if someone was knocking with his knuckles among our feet. This was immediately followed by a hollow cough from the very room from which the apparition proceeded. The only noise after this was as if a person was rustling against the wall in coming upstairs. At a quarter to one, I told my friend that feeling a little cold, I would like to go to bed as we might hear the noises equally well there. He replied that he would not go to bed till daylight. I took up a note which I'd accidentally dropped and began to read it, after which I took out my watch to ascertain the time and found that it wanted 10 minutes to one. In taking my eyes from the watch, they became riveted upon a closet door, which I distinctly saw open, and saw also the figure of a female attired in greyish garments, with the head inclining downwards, and one hand pressed upon the chest as if in pain, and the other, the right hand, extended towards the floor, with the index finger pointing downwards. It advanced with apparently cautious step across the floor towards me. Immediately, as it approached my friend who was slumbering, its right hand was extended towards him. I then rushed at it, giving at the time, as Mr Proctor states, a most awful yell. But instead of grasping it, I fell upon my friend, and I recollected nothing distinctly for nearly three hours afterwards. I have since learnt that I was carried downstairs in an agony of fear and terror. I hereby certify that the above account is strictly true and correct in every respect. Whew! What a Whoa, night! Wow, what a, a night! That's a, uh, yeah, I think in technical terms, that's an escalation. Bit <laughs> of an escalation there. Yeah. So yeah. So now the diary does cover a large period of time, and there are so many incidents and events recorded. It would just take way too long to go through all of them. So suffice to say, these strange events continued for many years, and Proctor made a diary of them, communicated with various interested authors and writers and just generally curious people. And by 1847, though, the Proctors, they just had enough of their haunted house. So they moved um, house to Camp Filler in North Shields. But the ghost gave them one final performance. So the night before they left, they heard banging and dragging of boxes down the stairs as though the ghost was planning to move house with them. Um, <laughs> Fortunately for them, their new home was quiet. All there are anecdotes that the servants might just have played upon the family's haunted reputation to scare new maids. Um, but hey, <laughs> you know. Um, so Joseph died in 1875 and his son Edmund um, discovered the diary amongst his papers. Frustratingly, the manuscript wasn't complete. So the haunting ran from um, about 1835 to about 1837 when they left, 1847, sorry. But the diary cuts off in August 1842 um, and Joseph never managed to find the missing pages. And they, there was a sort of indication that some great revelation and, and that, that they would contain absolute proof the events were supernatural. <laughs> um, Mrs Proctor 
when he re she realised that Edmund had discovered the diary, um, did ask that he wait until she died before publishing it, and, and he respected those wishes. So after the Proctors left, so yeah, so there was a bit of a delay. It was in the 1890s when it was published, but um, after the Proctors left the mill, um, the mill house was occupied with by Thomas Mann and his family, and they had already experienced some of the strange phenomena. And they lived in the house for 20 years. It was split into two dwellings. Um, and they, they did experience some things, but they stayed there 20 years. It was later broken up into even more tenements, and eventually it fell into it, you know disrepair and ruin. And Joseph Proctor closed the mill in 1865 and sold it in 1871. It's worth noting that the mill itself is supposed to have a ghost called Kitty, but I haven't really had time to go into that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, very haunted area. But was it mm. was it genuine? Was it genuine? So the thing with the Willington Mill haunting is it, it happened a very long time ago and we do have a lot of records for it, but it, it's very hard to provide a satisfactory explanation, you know, after such a long passage of time. And I think what's kind of comes across when you read the diary and a lot of the accounts of it is that most contemporary accounts stress the reliability of the witnesses. Joseph Proctor and his wife were devout Quakers, respected business people. Proctor was an abolitionist. He was a member of the temperance movement. Um, several of the other witnesses were trusted family members or long-standing servants or employees. So, and at the time, they went and they searched the room where the noises were happening in the disturbed room. They just looked at the environmental factors like was was it the railway was it the, the mill was it the weather you know was there a magic lantern in you know being used they looked at these things and they discounted them all at the time um another thing that i mean clearly some people call this a poltergeist haunting um mm -hmm. you know noises bangs all of that very classic poltergeist and with poltergeist hauntings they can often be kind of tracked back to bored children and teenagers faking it um and there i wrote about a couple of two famous 18th century cases the stockwell ghost and the cock lane ghost fantastic name and um they turned out to be one was like a bored maid who was young and homesick and just wanted to create mischief and again the, the other one was the daughter of the household who was also bored and just you know Mm -hmm. got everybody from Samuel Johnson to Horace Walpole coming to have a look at the Cochrane wow. ghost. Yeah, and it was just bored kids, basically. And when you look at Willington, we've got presumably a young nursemaid who's the first to experience the phenomena, but she leaves pretty much soon after she reports it because she doesn't enjoy it. Mm. <laughs> and the children, there's children there. And But when you look at the haunting begins in 1835, Joseph and Elizabeth got married in 1831. The youngest child was, uh, well, the oldest child when the haunting started was only about two years old. Yeah. So they're not responsible. Um, the railway viaduct, that opened in, in June 1840. So presumably that's not a factor. But I, I do wonder whether when they began building it, like were they digging deep foundations for those big arches? Could that, you know, create some vibrations or noise? I, I, I'm not an expert on engineering. Um but one of the things, one of the most, I always think a lot of hauntings come about because people maybe experience a few sounds or noises that they don't know what caused them. And they think maybe it's a ghost and then they become what's called hypervigilant. Yeah. So like everything, everything they can't immediately explain becomes supernatural. Yeah, so it supernatural. becomes self-fulfilling eventually, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think that is, is 
possibly something that happened. I also think priming is another factor. Um, and I think that's like, so for example, um, Dr. Drury professed himself in a letter asking to come and visit as an absolute skeptic, was convinced he would solve it all. He spent an evening with Proctor who basically listed everything strange that happens in the house and how scary it all was. And then he has a strange experience. And I, I think he was primed, whether he believed it or not. And I think because of the time, it was like coming on one o'clock in the morning. He'd already said he wanted to go to bed. Maybe he sort of drifted off and then had a sort of sleep paralysis, hypnagogic um, hallucination of the old lady coming out of the closet. I think there's so many different things it could be. Mm. Other than, I mean, it could be a ghost as well. Yeah, yeah. Don't get just, me wrong. It could be a ghost. That. It I'm, could I'm be. In, I'm in the camp that it's a terrifying ghost. Lately. It's a terrifying ghost. Yeah. But, um, but even when you go to the children, you've got... Um, Joseph Proctor um, Jr. was mm. the one who sort of tr triggered the idea of the strange animals in, in both cases, I think. And Edmund Proctor, who published the diary, he says that the strange cat was the first and the monkey incident. He remembers them and he was two years old. So I wonder if like Joseph Proctor, who was maybe eight, has said to, jo uh, yes. to Edmund, have you seen the strange yeah, yeah, cat yeah. rather than have you seen the strange cat? And yes. it's like, let's go chase the strange cat. Yes. And it's, I, I wonder if it's a bit of false memory and a bit of, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. But for the paranormal explanation, um, one of the books I read about um, the haunting of Willington Mill is by um, Michael J. Hallowell and Darren W. Ritson. And they looked at lots of different theories um, from a paranormal perspective. And their book is excellent. It quotes loads of primary sources. It forensically analyzes the diary, everything. It's great. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they looked at more about whether there really was a murder on the site and whether that the ghost that Drury saw was pointing down to the cellar where the body was buried and whether Joseph um, Brown and, uh, you know, Unthank and Proctor all knew about this event um, there's no records there's no records to say there was a murder or that any of those people committed it it's just that maybe they knew about it and... makes for an Edgar Allan Poe style though doesn't it there's a twist yeah, there, it? yeah. definitely yeah. and then and they, they one of the most fascinating theories they come up with was maybe that area is in a time slip and that what the mm. when people are hearing snatches of conversation or the children are seeing themselves or hearing conversation or even the family hearing the the sound of moving they're hearing echoes of the future or are they looking into the deep past were those strange creatures prehistoric it's fascinating it's really interesting <laughs> the theories they have i i love the time slip theory i, I i've always wanted yes. to you know doctor who yes yeah <laughs> um and and i get and what's in that what was in that nailed room what was in that room yeah i mean sealed that's, a whole, that's a whole oddity in itself isn't it a I mean, sealed room in any house nobody seals a room without good cause exactly and at that i think that's where the mystery really lies definitely definitely <laughs> so i mean that's that's the main i mean there's 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 more there's always more because it was a very big story at the mm. time um but that's that's all i'd like to talk to say about it but if anyone does want to visit the site of wellington mill um the house is long gone. It's now under a car park um, in the old mill building. So no vigils there anymore. Um, the mill is still there. Um, it's reduced in size and it's it's run by our hood Haggy and Sons, I think now is a rope work. So you can't actually access the site. Um, 
but you can get some really great views of the mill if you go on the opposite side of Willington Gut and there's like a wooded footpath and as you walk through the wooded footpath you can see this rose-coloured brick building with a curved roof suddenly coming out shrouded by trees and branches um, and reflecting in the still waters of the gut and to be honest when you say it like that it's it's kind of easy to imagine it as a place out of time where mm. something really strange could have happened so there you Very go cool that's brilliant oh i love it that's just <laughs> i i, I look ex exactly like last year's walled end walls end which is it is <laughs> it is just kind of going oh yeah by the way this place that everybody knows there's a ghost story there oh there, yeah a, more than a one spooky story <laughs> I just think that's brilliant because, you know, oh, I, you. I just I love that. I just think it's fantastic to kind of it, think of something, especially it's, it's almost even better now that it's a car park because I it's know. Like, like something so absolutely normal has yeah. a spooky tale behind it. I love that. And I just think it's, it's you know, it's such a lovely place. You can go and visit it. It's a beautiful building. I mean, across the river, you can't go into it, but um, it looks lovely. It, it's a really nice little walk down there. You go through whole grounds in well, uh, Walls End, like down King's mm, Road and mm. through Hall Grounds, walk through the burn, and you can see the where the witches work and yeah. just up from the burn. That's where all Holy Cross Church is. Follow it through, follow this little footpath, follow along the gut, and bang, you see the viaduct. Go along a bit further, and you see the um the mill. So it's Real. it's a such an industrial you know area that you yeah. just don't think these stories happen in places like that, and they do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's that's what I love about it. Well, what do you think of that then, listeners? The Haunting of Willington Mill. It's another wonderful story. And huge, huge thank you to Sylvia, the Haunted Palace blog. And um, keep your eyes peeled for another book coming from the team behind the blog. Um, I think it's out this... It might be out Halloween. If not, it's definitely out very, very soon. So please check out the Haunted Palace blog and check out their new book because I have a copy of their first book and it was fantastic. I really enjoyed reading that. What I love about that story is that it really does feel like any minute now, the team that make the Conjuring movies are going to sort of pick up on that story and say, there is so much to it. There's so many layers of interesting things that happened. And we're going to turn it into a movie. I kind of hope they do. But you can see what I mean. So much going on in a case like that. And just, you could spend so long trying to work out, you know, was that real? Was it not? But then I guess, like me, you get to choose whether or not you want to believe. And I, I think I want to believe. Well, I hope you have enjoyed that. We do have another one of our specials coming up. I'll explain that in a minute. If you would, uh, if you've heard this episode, and that's the first of our Halloween stories you've heard, then go and look back through our podcast, and you will find that last year we talked about the Walls End Witches, which is a great story. So if you want to go back to that episode, scroll back through the podcast, find last year's entry, the Walls End Witches, and have a listen. And we put out some spooky episodes uh, around Christmas as well, so uh, listen out for those. They'll be probably back in the history of the podcast if you scroll back, and there might be something coming out this year as well. Now, I do have, I do have one more special for Halloween. It might not make it out on Halloween, however. We'll just have to see how I can get on with my editing. And that is a story set in the Northeast, an inspired by events in the northeast but it's definitely one to listen to with your headphones on when you're tucked up in bed at night 
I'll leave you with that. Keep an eye out on the podcast. Remember, you can follow the podcast via our Facebook page. Just search Facebook for the Voices from the Northeast podcast. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. And you can get the podcast through almost every single podcast platform. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on Google Podcasts. You can get it through Spotify. So please uh, pick one or all of those options and subscribe to the show. And I'd really love to hear from listeners. I get emails from listeners and messages on our Facebook from listeners. Um, but I'd love some of you to take a few minutes, if you can, please, and leave some comments either on Apple Podcast or on um, Spotify just to leave us a review because it helps make the podcast more visible to other listeners. All right. Take care of yourselves, everybody. Stay spooky. And don't eat too much candy on Halloween.